Good morning, Bethel. It's good to be good to be back. I'm doing well, Barry. Good to see you again. How are you doing? Good. Good. Well, we definitely definitely did have a profitable week um, in Lafayette. Um, we were able to see Cheryl Prentice, um, who was actually there for the week. This is her, I think, third year of coming up for the training up there, and they're going to be. Uh, coming out here pretty soon in March. They're going to be with us for a few months, so it was good to connect with her. Um, obviously, some good time with, uh, with uh, Bill and Barb and, and with Sarah as well. Uh, they pack it in. It's like drinking from a fire hose from 8 a.m. to 6.30. It's roughly the schedule every day, um, so a lot to process. I think it was really good for Beth and I, and hopefully, um, hopefully our church will benefit um, from what we were entrusted with this past week. Um, definitely would encourage you if you're interested in, I mean, really, you know, one of the things that they say over and over again is the best counselor is a counselee, is a good counselee. And obviously, if we're going to help anybody else without being a hypocrite, we've got to deal with our own heart issues first. And so um, a lot of it is a mirror to your own heart. Um, and so whether it's for the sake of your own heart or... Um, if you have an interest in, in counseling ministry, uh, like the stuff that Bill and Barbara have been doing here um, for quite a while, definitely would in- encourage you to consider coming next year if that's possible. Obviously, a whole week is a difficult thing for many people, but um, it's really great training. And there are CDs, and I think the Armstrongs have basically just about a library of it. So maybe you could come over and check a few things out, um, and uh, you'll benefit from it. So... Coming back into the book of Luke, and uh, as we head into chapter 4 this morning, I want to just ask a couple questions, maybe kick up um, some thinking along the lines of things that oftentimes happen in our hearts. Um, Have you ever been bugged by God's timetable? And I don't mean just, I mean certainly oftentimes his timetable and our timetable don't always mesh. I mean, bugged by it. Like maybe, you know, okay, a few weeks or a few months, that's okay, but this is getting ridiculous. That kind of bugged. Or have you ever been angered by what seems like silence in response to your prayers? Yeah, we know that sometimes God's timing is perfect. Sometimes his answer is wait or his answer is no, and that's what's best for us, but we can actually get really frustrated and even angry with God for what seems to be silence and maybe indifference. Have you ever questioned God's goodness or his wisdom in the way that he's dealing with you? You know, maybe he, something happened, some trial, some loss. Why did you let this happen? I don't like your plan. I don't like your will. I don't like your agenda. I mean, have you ever been honest enough with your own heart to recognize that sometimes our agenda and God's agenda just really seem to lock horns, butt heads? So I think there's a really interesting juxtaposition in this text. Big word just means putting two things side by side that Um, in this case, really seem a bit strange to go side by side. Um, But I think it will really help us to look at 
at these two things side by side as we look at our hearts that are oftentimes, rather than soft and yielded and meek and trusting, that we, made out of dust, can really trust and yield to and surrender to a wise, loving God that knows everything, sees everything, and is good and wise regardless of what seems like the wrong kind of time frame or the wrong answer or that he's withholding something from us. So let's pray and ask God to give us soft hearts as we um, take a look at his agenda and ours. Oh God, you are the potter. You are the creator of all things. You've created us, these little creatures made in your image to reflect your glory. And so often, Lord, we can stiffen, stiffen our backs and our wills against you. We can even shake the fist in your face when we don't like your ways or your timing or your purposes or your answers or your seemingly lack of answers. And I pray that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that you would show us who you are, what you're like. And even when your agenda crosses ours, I pray that we would see that it's so good Your agenda is so good, even if it's hard in the short term. So that we'll want to trust you. We want to yield to you. And we'll be soft and submissive to you as our good, benevolent, loving king. Who knows what's best for us and can be trusted. And we see that most clearly in the life, in the words the humble incarnation, the walk-a-day-in-our-shoes, sympathetic ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ who took on flesh and was tempted and tried just as we are and yet was without sin and, and paved the way for our hard rebellious wills to be broken and softened and changed. Who made, he being the light, made it possible to see though our eyes were blinded with our sin, your glory and your grace and your goodness so that we want to run to you, so that we want to trust you, so that we want to follow you, even when it seems like darkness and confusion or a wait that's just too long. So show us your character, and I pray that you would bend our wills to yours this morning. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Luke chapter 4. Jay read it earlier. And we're going to look at it basically in in two parts and then draw some application uh, at the end. And the first part is found in verses 14 to 21. There's an uh, outline in the bulletin, if that's helpful for you. We look at Jesus' agenda, why he came in verses 14 to 21, and then we're going to be cautioned by the example of the people in Jesus' own hometown, Nazareth, not to try to set 
Jesus' agenda for him, <laughs> but rather to embrace his agenda for our lives um, instead. So we're going to learn that we don't set Jesus' agenda by watching how his own hometown tried to and the response to it. So first, we're going to look at verses 14 to 21. Um, and little just reminder of where we are. We've been off a week. Um, thankful for uh, Blake Hardcastle's ministry and, and just so many good brothers in the area here that uh, can fill the pulpit and minister God's word to you. I look forward to listening to it. Um, didn't get a chance to do this past week, but look forward to this week uh, and learning from him. So, remember that the Messiah's birth was foretold, early chapters of Luke. It came to pass, just like the angel had said, Jesus grew up, and the favor of God and man was with him. Okay, Jesus is baptized by John, anointed by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Spirit comes down as a dove, and there's this divine endorsement from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then where did the Spirit lead him? Immediately. After that anointing, right out into the wilderness to be tested and tempted by the evil one in the wilderness. He was there for 40 days. So just like Israel was led into the wilderness after the exodus to be tested and tempted, tested and tried, and they failed. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, was tested and tempted and tried. And where we failed, he was victorious, and he conquered. He is the pioneer of our faith. He's blazing the trail for us. Where we have failed, he's going to succeed. And so now he's returning from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, like it says in verse 15, 14, to begin his ministry. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. You know, you hear people wondering and amazed at what's being said about this this person, and so news is spreading. Um, things went viral. There was no YouTube or Facebook back then, but news would spread word of mouth, person to person. And he began teaching in their synagogues in Galilee, and he was praised by everyone. Obviously, a good teacher. He's healing, he's doing these things. People are praising him. Well, what is the nature of this man's ministry? What's he going to do? Why is he here? Who is he? And this passage here is so important to answer those questions. And it's very important in the context of the book of Luke as it unfolds because it really sets that agenda. It says, here's why I'm here. This is who I am. Here's why I'm here. And actually, the rest of the book of Luke unfolds and oftentimes kind of clearly refers back to this section and unpacks what Jesus declares in this passage. So he came to Nazareth, which is a part of the region of Galilee. Okay, you have the Sea of Galilee. Let's see if I can do this backwards. Sea of Galilee and the region of Galilee here. Nazareth is down here. So he's around in some of the different synagogues in that region, being praised by everyone. And then he comes home, comes to his hometown, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue. That's obviously different from the temple. There was one temple in Jerusalem, but there were synagogues spread around. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. They would stand to read. They would sit to teach. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, which is Isaiah 61, 1 to 2. We'll look at that in a minute. And he read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me 
Does that ring a bell? He just was anointed by the Holy Spirit at the baptism, right? He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Close the book or rolls up the scroll, whichever it was, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and every eye is fixed on him. And then he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, so we need to first take note of what he read and then also what he didn't read because it's actually really interesting what he didn't read from Isaiah 61. Okay, so let's first look at what he read. He's quoting from Isaiah 61, 1 to 2, this gospel to the poor. Well, who are these poor? Who are the poor he came to preach to? Are they the spiritually poor? Sometimes we just kind of quickly run to that. Well, that's what it says in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. So he's talking about the spiritually poor. Or is he talking about the economically poor? Some people just say, well, it's, there's this focus on the, the poor in Luke. And so, so it's, it's actually really the economically poor. Well, actually, yes and no. The poor, in a sense, are a metaphor. And they're only a metaphor because they're actually not a metaphor. That's confusing. Just hang in there. The point is, is that the metaphor works because of the presence of the real thing, namely people that truly are poor. And proverbially speaking, those whose lives are an illustration of neediness and weakness and helplessness and vulnerability are the ones that most often recognize their need for a savior. So, proverbially speaking, generally speaking, those whose lives are an illustration of the upside down nature of the kingdom, remember those reversals that we talked about in the first couple chapters? It's usually those who are poor and needy and recognize themselves as such who come to Jesus for help and forgiveness and grace. Whereas those who tend to be more wealthy and self sufficient, generally speaking, don't need him. So one commentator, Green, says, in that culture, one's status in a community was not so much a function of economic realities merely, but depended on a number of elements, including education, gender, family heritage. It's like, for instance, women who were barren. (laughs) Low status. Okay, so it's not just economics. It's multiple things going on. Family heritage, religious purity, vocation, economics, and so on. Thus, lack of subsistence might account for one's designation as poor, but so might other disadvantaged conditions. And poor would serve as a cipher, as like shorthand, for those of low status, for those excluded according to the normal canons of status honor in the Mediterranean world. Hence, although poor is hardly devoid of economic significance, certainly carries those connotations, For Luke, this wider meaning of diminished status honor is paramount. It's evident that Jesus' mission is directed to the poor, defined not merely in subjective spiritual or personal, I'm sorry, defined not merely in subjective spiritual or personal economic terms, but in the holistic sense of those who are, for any of a number of socio-religious reasons, relegated to positions outside the boundaries of God's people. Now, that's a bunch of words. 
Let me just put it into more concrete terms. Think Zacchaeus. He's rich, but he's poor because he was a tax collector. People hated tax collectors. They were on the outside. They were traitors. And so he recognized his poverty, and he was brought in even though he was outside. Okay? Or the prostitute. She had this bottle of perfume, remember? We'll get to that eventually. She breaks this on Jesus', wipes Jesus' feet. She was on the outside. She was one of the poor. And obviously she brought a lot of that on herself. So it's all of these things factored together. But there is a general truth in the Bible. And sometimes, you know, again, in the Western world, we, we uh, minimize it or we um, ignore it or whatever. But listen, listen to these texts. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? That's James 2.5. Does that mean that if you're poor, you're automatically in? <laughs> no, absolutely not. But generally speaking, people that are poor recognize their need. And generally speaking, it's as hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom as a camel through an eye of a needle. Now, does that mean everybody that's rich is sunk? No. Right after that, Jesus says, with, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Like greedy little guys that can't see over the crowd can have their hearts turned and they can be brought in. Okay? 1 Corinthians 1.26, same thing. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man may boast before God. So actually, when when it comes to understanding what Isaiah or Jesus means, you see how it's this, in a sense, it is a metaphor, but that doesn't mean that it's not referring to people that are literally poor. It's kind of a both and. It's, it's true for these people, generally speaking, but the kind of vulnerability and weakness and neediness that characterizes the poor becomes a category. It becomes a metaphor for all of us. Does that make sense? Same thing with captivity. Same thing with blindness. He says, He's here to proclaim release to the captives. Does that just mean just literally people in prison? No, but it certainly includes those. How about sight to the blind? Does that mean only blind people? No. It does mean blind people, and you see Jesus giving blind people sight in the Gospels, but they're also, in a sense, like a parable. (laughs) These blind people are like a parable. He gives them sight, but sometimes he gives them sight, and he gives them sight. And the people who really see physically, like the Pharisees, are actually blind. And the way they react to Jesus' miracle shows their blindness. So do you see how it's, it's, in a sense, both literal and metaphorical? So <clears throat> if you were, say, blind in that society, you're an outcast, you're unable to work, you can't um, you inevitably be left to this life of poverty, begging, vulnerability. Um, and so that becomes a picture of what we all are. 
spiritually. And we need to have eyes to see it. The word for release, for instance, in verse 18, to proclaim release to the captives or to set free, it's the same word there, is used, it oftentimes is translated forgiveness, being released from a debt that you owe. So that woman in, in Luke 7, who's the prostitute, her sins are forgiven because he came to proclaim release to the captives, people that are captive to their sin. Set free those who are oppressed. Okay? So we're learning about Jesus' agenda, why he came. And he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, this prophecy. Now the last thing that Jesus reads before he closes up the scroll and hands it back is in verse 19, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Anybody know what that's a reference to? I know Vito does. Where's Vito? <laughs> it's the Jubilee. You know what the Jubilee was? The Jubilee year? Okay, turn back to Leviticus 25. And see, the original hearers would know these associations. We have to, to try to get back into their shoes. We've got to, to learn a little bit more about their context so that we can get the meaning of what Jesus is saying here. So turn back to Leviticus 25. Um, it's on page, actually the very bottom, we're going to look at verse 8, 131 in the Pew Bible, and then we'll turn the page right away. So Israel is a nation operating like a theocracy under God's rule, and he's helping them know how to live as his people. And he says in verse 8, You are also to count off seven Sabbaths, or seven weeks of years for yourself. Seven times seven years, which is how many years? You still awake? 49, there we go. So that you have the time of the seven Sabbath of years, namely 49 years. For those of you that don't have the calculator, thank you, Lord, um, for the sum there. Verse 9, You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, interestingly enough. You shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall then consecrate the 50th year and, listen, same language, proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. Now look down at verse 39 so that you can get a feel for why this is good news if there is a release proclaimed. It's just one example of how this would be really good news. Especially if you're poor. Verse 25, or chapter 25, verse 39. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, I need to work for you because I can't survive on my own. You shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man. He's your employee. As if he were a sojourner. He shall serve you with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family in freedom that he may return to the property of his forefathers. So he, he gets his freedom back. He gets his property back. For they are my servants from whom I brought out the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. 
So do you see how Jubilee had this, these great good news connotations and had profound implications for someone when they, were, when they heard the proclamation of that release? And so Jubilee actually became a paradigm for how to describe the salvation of God. So that language here in Isaiah. The freedom, the restoration that characterized the Jubilee year was a picture. It was a powerful picture of what God would do when he brought the salvation that Isaiah is promising here in Isaiah 61. So now we've looked at what Jesus read. Uh, We also need to notice what he didn't read. So keep your finger in Luke 4. Okay, so I'm challenging your math skills this morning and dexterity here. You got a one finger in Luke 4 and then back to Isaiah 61 because you need to compare these. There's a couple minor differences, but there's one that just kind of pops out of the page if you're paying attention. I just want us to notice one of the differences where Jesus stopped. So he's reading along. I came to proclaim liberty to captives, the end of verse 1, freedom to prisoners on page 744 in the Pew Bible if you need it, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Closes the book. What's next? And the day of vengeance of our God. Do you think people that had been steeped in the Scripture, they only knew the Old Testament, Isaiah, this massively central book in their lives, they would have heard it week in and week out, not just Isaiah, the whole of the Scriptures, but they certainly would have heard the Bible. Do you think it might have stuck out to his listeners that he stopped here? Do you have any idea why he stopped here? So you just, well, that's enough for today. Um, you know, I've only got 45 minutes, so I think I'll just... I'll just stop there, pick up there next week. No, his primary purpose in his first coming was not to immediately bring judgment on God's enemies. Now, see, here's the the funny thing is, they need their expectations retooled because they would have thought that that vengeance was for people out there. The problem is, everybody's in this category. So if he doesn't come first with the good news... Everybody is subjected to that vengeance. So his primary purpose was for, this is so beautiful, for that vengeance, that judgment to fall on him so that God's enemies, all of us, born in sin who have shaken our fist at him naturally, might be reconciled to him while we were still sinners. Enemies, like it says in Romans 5. Children of wrath, that's our nature we don't like God's agenda. He's king. We, we want to be king of our own kingdom. Don't get in my way. So if he doesn't come the first time, not to bring the vengeance, but to actually take the judgment so that we can be reconciled, then there's no good news at all. So Jesus read Isaiah 61. He actually pulls in a little bit of a comment from Isaiah 58, which is interesting, but we won't take the time to go there, um, because Isaiah 58 also has these themes of of jubilee as well and the implications of it. Um, But did you notice that the passage is full of me's? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release. And then he says, 
today this scripture has been filled in your hearing. He's at home. He's in his own town. He grew up there. (laughs) And he is making a crazy claim. Before we kind of consider that, one more little note. And this is, again, we've got to just jump back into their shoes so that we can hear the connotations that they would have caught that we tend to miss. This word today, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What does that mean? Um, This individual Sabbath, whatever day it was, you know, July 16th or whatever. No, that wasn't the point. Today doesn't literally mean one particular day. Just like the favorable year of the Lord doesn't refer to, you know, Jesus' first year of his public ministry. Or maybe it was his second. Or maybe it was his third. No. He's proclaiming the favor of God. It's come in his coming. Because see, there's this expectation. He's, he's tapping into the hope of deliverance language in the Old Testament. They knew that there was a day coming when God would deliver his people. And that day was a day that they were really looking forward to. And Jesus is saying, it's here. Today, it's, it's arrived. It's fulfilled in your hearing. Here I am. All those me's, it's me. He's claiming to be the one, the Messiah, the anointed one through whom their deliverance would come. Leon Moore said, Jesus' contemporaries did not doubt that God's kingdom would come someday. Jesus' teaching was different in that he saw God as acting in the present in his own work. He was bringing that day. So you have some subtle but powerful statements later on in in the Gospel of Luke. We'll look at these later. But do you remember with Zacchaeus? He says, today I've got to. I must stay at your house. That's echoing this. And then he says, when, when Zacchaeus, you know, shows the fruit of his repentance, and he says, you know, anything that I've, I've stolen, I'm going to restore it fourfold, and I'm going to give this money to the poor. And what does Jesus say? Truly I say to you, or he, actually that's later. He says, today salvation has come. Same thing. Or how about the thief on the cross? Would you remember me? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Or maybe you've been confused by this before. Hebrews 3. Remember this? Take care, brothers, that there there not be in any of you an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today. Huh? It's this. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, now is the time of salvation. Don't let your heart get hard. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So the point is the time between Jesus' first and second comings. Now, today is the time of his mercy, not his vengeance. It's the time of his kindness, like we sung. And his kindness is supposed to lead us to Repentance. There's still time left to trust him. Don't wait until it's too late. I'll figure that stuff out later. No. When he returns, it'll be too late. When you die, it'll be too late. Today is the time of his mercy. So Jesus makes it very clear what his agenda is, why he came, and... Then there's this really interesting kind of abrupt... Grating, shocking shift 
Okay, so look at verse 22. We're going to see how Jesus' agenda collided with the agenda of those in his hometown. We don't set Jesus' agenda, verses 22 to 30. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, I mean, where does this come? This seems like this is out of left field. No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. You're going to say that to me. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Remember, dipped seven times. And all the people in the synagogue were... (laughs) We went from... All were speaking well of him in 22 to all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. I mean, did that fill you with rage (laughs) to read that? No, we we really need to get in the shoes. What is going on here? And they got up. We're just angry at him. They didn't throw tomatoes or anything. They're driving him out of the city. Get out of here. They're leading him to the brow of this hill. They want to throw him off the edge. And then, amazingly, in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went his way. Okay, so again, beginning of Jesus' ministry, who he is, why he came is being established. Satan had an agenda, right, for Jesus. If you bow to me, all this will be yours. Jesus rejected that agenda and resisted his temptations. Now we see that Jesus' hometown has an agenda for Jesus. I mean, he's one of our boys anyway. I mean, isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, you can almost think the barbershop conversations. You know, Joseph's son, look at, you know, all all that stuff that Joseph's son is doing? That could be good. That could be good for the town. I mean, if he's doing all these great things in Capernaum, think about what he's going to do for us. We're his people. We are his townsfolk. This could be really good for us. But as commentator Joel Green says, the positive response to Jesus by his audience within the synagogue was based on a narrow provincial understanding of Jesus' identity and mission. It's as though to this juncture they filtered his message through their restrictive presumptions about him. As a consequence, he acts now, he acts now because he knows what's going on in their hearts. He acts now to unveil further the nature and implications of his identity and mission. But when they come to understand more fully the nature of Jesus' mission, he will not be acceptable to them. So he actually proactively kicks up and exposes what's in their hearts. He did not come for people to say nice things about him. I mean, hey, everybody's... If that was what he was after, he would have just kept his mouth shut. You know, everybody's just speaking highly of him. They're all praising him. But he needs to make it clear that he's there to live out the mission of Isaiah 61, 1 to 2. And believe it or not, and this is the interesting juxtaposition, they are not going to like it. See, they'd heard 
good things about what he was saying and doing around Galilee, and they assume that he's going to do those similar things for them. In fact, they might even think that they'll be recipients of some special favors, like I said, as if he's, you know, one of their own and all. So verse 23, he says, No doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum. Do it here too. We heard. So come on, do it here too. Show us some signs. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. This whole doctor cure yourself thing is actually, it was a well-known proverb or saying in antiquity, but why it's used here is a little bit challenging. I think basically what's happening is that it's parallel with the line that comes after it. So look at verses um, look at verse 23. No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, physician, do some healing here in your backyard. You've done it out there. Do it here. And then Jesus says, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. In other words, their attitude seems to be a presumptuous one. Come on, hook us up. So the bottom line is that their attitude must be an unbelieving one in, in which their posture is one of testing him rather than trusting him. Does that make sense? In fact, if you listen, listen to how Mark explains the situation. It's really clear. Mark 6, you don't have to turn there. Just listen. Um, Jesus went out from there, came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. So just like, Jesus, just like Satan wasn't going to set Jesus' agenda, neither was his hometown, Jesus was doggedly committed to God's agenda. <clears throat> So Jesus lays out this agenda by reminding them of these two stories, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. The point is pretty simple. You can go back and read those stories later. But the people of Israel had rejected the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, and as a result, God sent them elsewhere. So if the people in Nazareth didn't see themselves as poor and needy, as captive to sin and in need of forgiveness and freedom as blind and in need of healing and spiritual sight, then Jesus was going to be going elsewhere. He was on a mission to create a new people. He wasn't bound by the selfish agenda of his hometown. And that really ticked them off. I mean, again, you can see that the poor language earlier on is not limited to socioeconomic categories because Naaman was obviously not poor, right? He was this army leader, general type guy, but he was poor in the sense of his sin and his leprosy. Okay, so they want to kill him. I mean, sometimes I think we just, we really need to read the Gospels with new ears because if we do, we will be offended at times with what Jesus says. (laughs) If you think that you would have lived at that time and never been offended by what Jesus said, you're not listening. 
He said some pretty sharp things sometimes, and we need to make sure that we, we don't recreate Jesus in our own image. He's going to step on our toes. He's going to step on our toes as we, we go through the Gospel of Luke. And it's good. Every time he does, it's, it's for our good. So blessed is the one who's not offended, even when we're offended. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, in, in, his, in God's wisdom, it's the very initial anger and resistance that kicks up sometimes at, at some of God's commands and things he says about us that forces us to deal with his wise and loving and rightful rule over our lives. So the section ends, verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went his way. So the commentators debate, you know, was this a miracle or not? I have no idea. <laughs> um, I don't see how it wasn't miraculous. I mean, I just picture kind of this TV movie scene, you know, where click, you know, it's like all of a sudden everything's in slow motion and he just kind of walks through the cl- How did that happen? I don't know. Or, or just pause. And everybody's like this, and they just, and then he's gone, and then he unclicks it, and then, where did he go? How how did this happen? I have no idea. But the point is clear. His way was his way, and he would not be diverted from his, his agenda or his path. He would be killed when he was good and ready. Now wasn't the time yet. He would not die by their rage in that moment until he had done all that he came to do so that he could die for their rage and for our rage. So, a few implications. Remember what was left out, okay? He stopped before that vengeance thing, the vengeance um, of God. And the whole point is, this is the gospel, this is so sweet, the vengeance would fall on him so that the freedom could be won, so that all the marginalized and weak and poor could be rescued and brought home into God's house, into his family. That's our greatest need. And so here's the point. He oftentimes delivers us into situations, delivers us into situations and suffering, and challenges us, steps on our toes, to help us recognize how poor and needy and captive and oppressed we are, to show us our greatest need. And you know what? The heat that does that can either melt the ice or harden the clay. The trials, the hard words, his rule, sometimes it melts us and breaks us, which is what it's intended to do. Sometimes it makes us angry because we don't like that God is God and we don't want to let him be God. Does that make sense? But we need to be reminded and warned by his hometown and Jesus' response to his hometown that we don't set Jesus' agenda. We need to submit to Jesus' agenda in faith. Think about this question. What is salvation for you? And I mean practically, functionally, day-to-day, Everybody wants to be saved from certain things. Pain, death, discomfort, getting caught, poverty, shame, all of these things. We don't want to be lonely. We don't want to be afraid. We don't want insecurity. We don't want... And sometimes God delivers us into those challenging situations to show us that we're trusting in the wrong things. 
And that's intended to free us from trusting in those false functional saviors and to get us to trust in him, the only true savior. But sometimes the heat that melts the ice hardens the clay and makes us angry. And so this is a warning to us. I mean, you could really want a better job. And Jesus just doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. Jesus wants to sanctify you through the challenges of that job and use, it, use you as a witness in and through the situation. Is that going to soften you or is it going to harden you? Whose agenda is going to win out? Or you could be searching for a job and you could really want a job now. And Jesus' agenda could be to teach you to wait and trust and put your hope in him, which ultimately is more valuable than the paycheck. And I know that's easy to say, but the point is, is this is his agenda oftentimes. Or we could get cancer or some debilitating disease, and our agenda is, God, heal me. And his agenda is, I'm going to heal you deeper than that. There's actually something worse than cancer. So little, this, I want to make sure this is practical because it's, it's, this is not just a salvation thing just bringing us to Jesus. This is how we wrestle with, are we really going to submit to his agenda? This is, this is again, really kind of, kind of silly ultimately, but I had to deal with it. I had some health problems, um, you know, some years ago. Um, it's a whole sequence of things, had a bunch of tests, but one of the issues was um, acid reflux that I didn't seem to be diet-related at all. And I went crazy diet change to see if that would work because we tried all the different meds from over-the-counter to the proto-pump inhibitor blocker things or whatever and combinations. And, you know, because I actually was spitting blood. I had this thing on my throat. And anyway, it's a long story. And they were saying it's not healing because when you sleep at night, so we're putting a bed up on blocks and, you know, no coffee, tea, citrus, spicy, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, I'm eating rice and water, you know. Okay, for months of this, what happens, what starts to happen in my heart? You see other people just, just going on their merry way culinarily. Must be nice. And I start getting frustrated and, you know, and do you know what a gift that season was? You wouldn't know it from looking at me, but Oftentimes, I've been convicted of how I love food more than I should. Food's a good gift, but I've wrestled with gluttony. And you know what? That across-the-grain agenda of God was such a gift. And I, I raised against it a little bit at first, but it was a really good gift. There's been other things like that. Maybe you've experienced the same thing. So sometimes God will deliver us into pain and suffering and discomfort. Because you know what? Any other God but him will ultimately fail us when real trouble, tribulation, and certainly death hit. So to deliver us from those hopes so that our hope is locked in him is a gracious agenda. So we shouldn't rage against it. So, last thought here. Um, as we pull this all together, isn't it amazing that Jesus says, here's why I'm here. 
to proclaim good news to the poor. I'm here to release the captives. I'm here to give sight to the blind. I'm here to set free those who are oppressed. I'm here to proclaim God's favor and not bring his vengeance. And over here is rage. Isn't that amazing that those two things are side by side? And so certainly, if you're raging against God for whatever reason, the answer is you need to hang out over here and hear. (laughs) I mean, I thought about this yesterday. He's here to preach the gospel to the poor. That could almost sound weak and cheap. Kind of like, I've got good news. Be warm and well-fed, poor people. Unless he wasn't just coming to merely say words, but the proclamation was actually to accomplish everything that was necessary to enrich those who were poor. Though he was rich, he made himself poor so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. We're absolutely spiritually bankrupt, but he is going to impoverish himself so that he can give us the riches of God's mercy and grace rather than the vengeance that we deserve. Isn't that sweet? Or proclaim release to the captives. What good is that? If you're standing outside the prison, okay, you guys are free to go. If it's just words, it's worthless. But if you come up in a boat and there's a man whom no one can bind with even chain because he's got a legion of demons enslaving him. And if you're a legion of demons, where are you going to go when Jesus comes? You're going to hightail it the other direction. And where did those demons come? They came right to his feet. Because he came not just to say words about freedom, he came to accomplish freedom. And he had power over those demons. And so they had to come and bow and ask permission where to go. So to proclaim that freedom, there is power in the words of an omnipotent Savior. The same one that said, let there be light, can say, let there be freedom. And then people from the town come, and this guy's sitting. You know, he's cutting his, he's living among the tombs, cutting himself with rocks. Nobody could restrain him. And here he's sitting, clothed in his right mind. Last night with the kids, we're reading Luke 11. We're reading through Luke slowly and just kind of talking about a little piece at a time. And Jesus cast out this demon that was making this guy mute. The demon has gone out. The mute man spoke. The crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, by Satan, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And then he says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Satan, strong man. He's the God of this world, low case G. Fully armed, guards his own house. His possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger attacks him, don't you love Jesus? I mean, 
Satan is our enemy. There is spiritual warfare, okay? Satan hates you. He's a deceiver, a liar, a murderer. He wants to take you down. He's like a roaring lion, and it can be scary sometimes. And here's someone stronger that doesn't just kind of come on the scene. He attacks him and overpowers him, and he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder because he was sent to proclaim release to the captives and actually win that release to set free those who are oppressed. Aren't you glad that Jesus is stronger? That's why he came, to enrich the poor, to free the captive, to give sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. So if he can do that for the garrison demoniac, how about for us who even, you know, many of us maybe we're, we're Christians. That ultimate rescue has taken place. But sometimes because of unanswered prayer in our view, in our agenda, sometimes because of trial, sometimes because of failure, 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 throw up your hands. And we're enslaved to one sin or another, whether it's gluttony, lust, serving money, fear of death, fear of man, fear of everything in our scary world and what's going to happen. Listen, listen, listen. This is Jesus' agenda. Do you hear it? Do you believe him? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives. It's not just words. I can do that. Whatever that, I mean, this is the whole gospel growth value. We should never just throw up our hands. God's always in the business, in the process of changing us, and he can. That's the encouraging thing. So don't throw up your hands. If you're battling some sin or if you just have become fatalistic, well, it's just the way I am. No! Not because of your iron will, but because of Jesus' power. We heard this over and over again this past week. So Bill and Barbara Price and Sarah, that. We can change, not because of our power, but because of the, the power of this anointed Savior whose agenda is to change us. So yeah, it's going to cut against the grain sometimes. But it's a good agenda, and we should yield to it and surrender to it. And if we look at how good his agenda is, it'll help us die to ours and trust his. Rather than raging at his agenda, we're going to trust him no matter how hard the path is to accomplishing his agenda in our lives. Let's pray. Oh, please, Father, open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on him, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, so that we can lay aside all the sins and the weights that entangle and trip us up and weigh us down, so that we can run with endurance the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Oh, we thank you for your great mercy and grace and this sweet agenda that in our sin and blindness and foolishness and pride we sometimes rage against. 
Lord, warn us this morning from your word and don't let us rage against your loving change agenda, freeing agenda, good news agenda. Help us to embrace that even when it's painful. In Jesus' name, amen.